Blog Talk Radio. And that would be us, Patrick. Fairness Radio with Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Welcome aboard. You're welcome to join us at 424-678-6806. We're, of course, on Blog Talk Radio today. Uh, Cyber Station USA Radio Network will be back with us Monday. We should do some press on that, Patrick. Okay. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, how are you? Pretty good. Not not bad at all. I um, obviously I, I watched the returns from uh, the South last night, and uh, looks like your friend Mr. Uh, Romney did not do too well in the South. Patrick, all I can say is Hawaii, Western Samoa, and on to Illinois. Yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> Yee! Oh, uh, no, I mean, I it, yeah, it was pretty disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not bad at all. <laughs> but there's also Costa Rica in there too. Not, I'm sorry, not Costa Rica. Uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, Porta, you know, Costa Rica is a different country. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, yeah. you know, Romney. I, there were certain things he did that that remind me of how there's a side of him that makes me very uncomfortable, and um, it, it's not proper behavior for a man of his stature and of his success. And that is this kind of silly pandering, which comes across so badly. You know, it's a, it, it remind, I mean, not to bring up another politician, but do you remember Hillary Clinton during the last election? She gave a speech at a black church, and she went into dialect. Uh, I kind of dimly remember that, too, but I think it was, it, she was making fun of herself. No, no, it was ser- it's hysterical. I, th- I think it's on YouTube. She was talking. She sounded like she was uh, from Maine. You know, you came to get there from here. You know, and and it was just one of these things. But I mean, she actually pulls it off a little bit better than than Romney. He just can't do that kind of stuff. No. It's kind of like you or I, Patrick, trying to tell a joke. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. I mean, we're not we're not comedians. And for him to talk about you know grits and I know how to say y'all. I mean, it was I embarrassing. That, that it was kind of embarrassing, particularly <sighs> the, the cheesy grits. I mean, cheesy grits yeah. are awful. People in the South don't even like them that much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just felt I cringe when he does that. He's uh, always done it, and it's it's he doesn't need to do that. He's much better than that. Uh, he, uh, you know, it's not something that's it, it doesn't come off well. <laughs> and not that that had anything to do with anything. I mean, I think a lot of his problem in the South is that uh, there's a lot of bigots down there that don't like Mormons. I'm sorry to be blunt. Yeah, that's probably true. And also, um, um, Santorum gave off a couple of of, uh, of, of signals in that direction, too. Um, I'm sure he did. I noticed that there were some odd breakdowns in the, uh, the, the voting, and that was um, – Mitt Romney got obviously the the beat Obama forty six percent and uh, the right experience fifty nine percent. He did not get married women. Right. Uh, they went uh, to um, well, actually, uh, who got the married women? Uh, Santorum got forty one percent. Yeah. And uh, Romney got thirty one. Um, moral character, Romney really lost on that one twenty two percent. That's terrible. He's got a great moral character. Uh, well, that's what the voters didn't think so. But the one that got me is that the youth turnout in right. both states was abysmal. It was below 8%. Well, they haven't really connected. I mean, Romney should stick with his his message, which is an economic message. You know, he's, he's uh, 
Bain Capital just came out with a report that's been covered by the Boston Globe here in Boston very quietly in the back pages of the uh, paper, yeah. where they show that um, in their many years, since they've been in business, and they were founded by Mitt Romney, they've only, only 5% of the companies under their auspices have had bankruptcies, and they really have created 100,000 jobs. And, and they've, they've created almost $100 billion in capital, most of it in the United States, but internationally. They've created they, – I mean, it's an extraordinary company, but it's very quiet. It's not – I mean, they, they, it took them this long to finally release the, this information. They should have released it a while ago. But I'm just bringing it up only because he has a great record in that area. That's his strength. He should be proud of it. He shouldn't try to, you know, kind of tiptoe around and, and try to act – and he's walking around with jeans. I mean, it's so stupid. And, and he irons his jeans, too, yeah, which I know. a lot of people have right. pointed out. Um, we've got to bring in our radio stations, but uh, uh, yeah, why don't you introduce your radio stations and I have a question for you. All right. Welcome aboard. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'd like to welcome our radio affiliates, WWPR AM in uh, Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM, Nashland, Oregon. Of course, we are hosted today by Blog Talk Radio. Cyber Station USA Radio Network shall return, God willing, next week at the usual time, which is 1 to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? I'm doing pretty well, and I'm, uh, you know, I watched the returns last night, and I actually wasn't too surprised that uh, even though the, the Santorum victory was more than the polls had, had said they were going to be, but... Uh, this means we're going to have a lot to talk about, possibly all the way to the convention. Right. Uh, but you said that you had talked before we uh, came on air. You mentioned a report in the uh, Boston Globe about Bain Capital creating 100,000 jobs. Was that 100,000 net jobs? That is yes. net of all the jobs it destroyed. Oh, I mean, it's it's above and beyond the jobs it destroyed. And the again, the 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 ratio is very tiny in terms of the number. It's only only five percent of their companies had bankruptcies. It's a very it's a it's an extraordinary record of success. And if you looked at the number of jobs that have been lost under Bain Capital's auspices compared to what they've created, is it's hugely different. They well, then, uh, they generated. And when I say 100,000 jobs, I think that's a conservative estimate because even just if you take a look at Staples alone, and they have shepherded that company from the very beginning, they have, I don't know how many employees they have, but it's an enormous number. Um, you know, it's a huge generator of jobs. I mean, you know, and obviously when you take over a sick company, you know, they have to might they might have to lay people off. But again, we've talked about this. You can look at it that as a glass half full or as a glass half empty. I mean, if you have 100 employees and you have to lay off 20, you could say, well, they destroyed 20 jobs, or you could say they saved 80 jobs. Or they uh, did both. Right, and I think that it probably leans more toward the saving because their record is, is, very, is very good in that area. As I said, the, uh, re the, the, the record indicates that only 5% of the companies under their auspices we reach bankruptcy. So, you know, they've got a pretty good record and one that generally is very favorably looked upon in Boston by both the uh, Democrats, Republicans, liberals and conservatives. They've always been one of the admired companies, one of the big companies in the state uh, because of the, for that very reason. I mean, they've created companies in the state that have been real changers, not only for the actual companies, but for the state's economy. 
Now, I'm looking at the article, and what it says is that Bain said the firm has helped create, helped create hundreds right. of thousands of jobs. It doesn't say it created 100,000 jobs. What's uh, the difference? Well, it helped create means it that there actually were others involved, and it, well, and, it did, and it doesn't say that that's net. Well, first of all, helped create. Bain is not in the business of Staples. Staples is. Bain is in the business of equity. They help Staples create jobs by getting them financed and giving them advice. I mean, they don't they don't actually do the, you know what I mean? This is an equity firm. It's not they're not a retail firm. So no, they don't actually create the jobs. They put their money and they put their acumen and their business sense behind companies that then create the jobs. Well, we shall. I'm sure that this is going to be well aired uh, during uh, the campaign. Yeah. And I'm surprised what, that the, this uh, this small letter that they just issued didn't come out a while ago. It has been aired in Massachusetts uh, every time Mitt Romney has run, and generally it's 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 viewed as very favorable. The attacks have fallen flat. I mean, you know, and Mitt Romney himself has said, you know, they're not perfect. They made some bad mistakes, especially in the paper mill business, which is something nobody could predict. But but if you take a look at the aggregate. They, you know, they've done it, and Mitt Romney has a very good case in that in that way. I mean, it's somebody who knows how to deal with, um, you know, both good and bad situations in business, and to evaluate that, and somebody who knows how to, to run a budget. Well, I'm sure that uh, that will be well aired during the campaign, and I'm sure he'll make that case, and I'm sure there'll be others who'll who pick it apart. So. We shall see. The one thing you have to keep in mind, though, is that because he was part of Bain and still derives his majority of her income from Bain, he potentially has a lot of conflicts of interest uh, when it comes to regulating companies that Bain has investment invested in. Well, I'm uh, sure, Patrick, he will do just like what Kerry did or what anyone else does when when they're involved with investments, and that is they put it into a blind trust. I think in his case it already is. I don't think he's at this point directly involved in any of these companies. In fact, I think that's a, that's already been stated. By the way, uh, speaking of balancing budgets, did you see the latest CBO report on uh, Obamacare? Uh, no, I didn't. I'm sure you'll tell me, though. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's going to cost double what the Obama administration said it would cost when it was passed, $1.76 trillion over 10 years. Now, is that net of savings? It says, let me just see, I'm looking at the, uh, this is Beltway Confidential, $1.76 trillion national health care law over a decade, according to a new projection released by the Congressional Budget Office, rather than the $940 billion forecast when it was signed into law. Now, that's double. Uh, Democrats employed many accounting tricks, according to the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan, when they were pushing through the national health care legislation, most egregious of which was to delay full implementation until 2014, so nobody would know, but, you know, sense the full brunt of it. Um, it would appear cheaper under the CBO standard 10-year budget window, and at least on paper, meet Obama's pledge that the legislation would cost around $900 billion over 10 years. When the final CBO score came out before passage, critics noted that the true 10-year cost would be far higher than advertised once projections amounted accounted for full implementation. Well, now here we are a year later, and they're releasing the fact that it is going to be quite a bit higher. In fact, tw twice as high. Well, I'll have to take a look at the report. And, it's all over uh, the news today, Patrick. Yeah, it's well, not just uh, – this isn't just uh, 
Beltway Confidential, which was published by the uh, Washington Examiner. This is being reported. It's a big story. Okay. And it, well, it should be a bigger story, but it's, uh, you know, this is, again, the beloved Congressional Budget Office, which I know you seem to revere and quote from so often. Well, because it's uh, the nonpartisan source of information. You can so, trust it. So there you go, then. Uh, well, I will take a look at the report. All right, then. All right, it's, uh, I was a little busy this morning. I didn't get a chance to read everything. Understood. And that should be a bigger story than it is. But uh, we'll see how it it, man, it shakes out. This would be a natural thing for, for Mitt Romney to bring up. I hope he does. Well, of course, he's still fending off attacks that uh, the Health Care Reform Act was actually based upon his. Uh, I know, that's right. Yeah. He doesn't and, want to talk about health. And there's a lot of video out there of him saying so. so. Oh, I know. So you're right. He doesn't want to talk about health. Care. Right. That's, uh, He's, it's somewhat of a liability because, yeah, he was into it. I remember that. Yeah. And, um, well, you live under it. You have it. Oh, yeah, and I remember when Romney was advocating. I remember I was in, a, in the TV studio with him, and he went on the air and advocated it. And I remember I was scratching my head, what is he doing? But and, and he was very strong on it. This is going to be the corner piece of my governorship, and this is great. And he had all the stats. Yeah, I mean, he was into this. But, of course, he has said many times publicly that he will repeal it. And I don't think that he'd go back on that, even though he was into it. I mean, he, you know, it was such, it's such a public statement. It was like when Eisenhower ran for president, he said, I'll go to Korea, you know, to end the war. And he did. You know, I, I don't think that when, when, when a candidate makes such a bold statement, of course, I mean, George H.W. Bush, no, no new taxes, right? Yeah, there is that. And, of course, the president can't repeal anything. The Congress has to repeal. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. But, uh, does and, that. and it may be moot anyway because the Supreme Court may take care of it. Yeah, and then there are, that, that argument's coming up fairly soon. Exactly. Um, I'm watching the board here. We should have a guest come on any minute now. And for, and for our listeners, we're, we're going to be talking with um, Karen Lugo, who's a very controversial figure. She's co-director of the uh, the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Claremont Colleges here in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's going to talk about Sharia law and uh, the Constitution. And she's been on before. And I should also point out that I've also reached out to Congresswoman uh, Loretta Sanchez, because uh, I know K- Karen's going to mention her, and we've see if we can get the congresswoman or a representative or office. It is a bit strange, Patrick, that a sitting congressperson would not allow – I can see – does she allow reporters? I mean, what is it, like off to the off limits from media? I, I don't know the details, so we'll have to wait until Karen comes on and gives us her version of the details. Yeah, that, that seems a little a little fishy to me. Yeah, so – you know that that's public information. Well, Karen is is with us, so uh, let's take a, a quick break, and I'll bring her on. Okay. Thanks. Karen, there. Yes, I am. Okay. And we are back. And we're back. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest is Karen Lugo. She is the co-director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at the Claremont Colleges in California. Karen, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. And it's the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, but we're affiliated with the Claremont Institute. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. And you're the author of an article, Sharia and the Constitution, you assert that Muslims are organizing discussions across America that assert that Sharia is compatible with the U.S. Constitution. Now, That's now, correct. 
Now, first of all, I really don't care if Sharia is compatible with the U.S. Constitution. I'm concerned with the U.S. Constitution. It may be compatible in some areas. It may not be in other areas. But why would we be involved in, I hope not, a, a publicly sanctioned conversation about this? I mean, it's a, it's one thing if Muslims want to get together at their mosque and talk about you know, Sharia and, and debate its, um, its compatibility, but why should this I, I don't I don't you know I'm not comfortable with this being a public policy question. Well, it has become so on several levels. Um one there are court cases where American judges are dealing with Sharia customs, traditions and rules in American courts and not just the high profile cases we hear about. Um I've just done a an additional updated survey on those cases. But secondly, um, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, is launching a series of these discussions in response to the legislative initiative called American Law for American Courts. So because that particular measure would ask judges to make sure that the American Constitution trumps any other foreign law, including Islamic law, the uh, Muslim political action groups have now decided that it's a good idea to hold official meetings. And in, in this case, when I say official, there were six public officials involved in this discussion. Now, uh, first of all, Patrick and I should interview a representative from ISNA to ask them about this, and I think we'll try to do that. But um, I'll ask you a, a very practical question, Karen, about this. I mean, is Sharia law compatible with the U.S. Constitution? I think first it's so important to understand what we talk about when we say Sharia law. If you ask um, Dr. Muzamil Siddiqui, who hosted the discussion that I wrote about at the Garden Grove Islamic Center, um, he says that it's all about the same aspirational values that are the background to our Constitution, freedom of religion, tolerance, equality, be nice to everyone, they'll be nice to you. Um, I've interviewed several. He's actually chairman of the FIC Council, which is their jurisprudential um, center. And mm -hmm. so in interviewing many of these Muslim um, scholars, they all say the same thing, and it's very difficult to get to a definition of what is Sharia. So one must look at then how it is practiced and, uh, of course, looking at some of the recent um, court experiences in America, as well as what's playing out in other countries, and, and I'll keep it to Western countries for now. So mm -hmm. looking at what's happening in France, Germany, the U.K., Sharia in these Western societies where the clash exists is freedom of speech, freedom to live Islam, to leave Islam, as a religion, and freedom of women to have access to equal rights, equal property rights, and equal rights of recognition. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think we just saw a very troubling law put forth by none other than the government of Afghanistan, Hani Karzai, right. who said that it's now legal for men to beat their wives, um, you know, which is something, of course, that uh, is not consonant with the Constitution. Um, you know, if if what they're saying is that uh, is that Sharia law means uh, tolerance for everybody and all that kind of stuff, then fine, let them say it and then be be done with it. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's it's something exactly. that of course is a given. But you're saying that this is much more specific. Now, when you say that, for example, 
uh, Sharia law in other countries has to do with um, laws against people converting out of Islam. Uh, are they trying to make that a legal public matter in the United States? What's happening in the United States, for example, and we'll go back to Dr. Muzamil Siddiqui, um, who told me all about how how generically compatible Sharia is with the Constitution. Yet in the past, he issued an Islamic ruling or fatwa, which counseled a man that he could lightly punish his wife if she didn't respond to other corrections. So, no, you don't get, you know, push for a law in the United States at this stage where it's a matter of, you know, beating wives or children or women. It's, it's a matter of a lot of caveats. It's, yes, there's freedom of speech, but we have to be careful. This is how you will speak to Muslims and about the prophet. So it's, there are always when you press, and, and the reason, in fact, that I called Dr. Siddiqui to interview him after this uh, Islamic Center meeting on Sharia and the Constitution, they never talked about Sharia and the Constitution. So I called him to say, look, the very first thing that Muslim leaders in America can do is say, in America, Sharia will not mean what it means in, say, Afghanistan, where they are murdering our, our citizens because of accidental burning of the Qurans. We denounce that. We repudiate that. I could not get him to say that. You know, I mean, I guess that um, what I would say to them is that um, if, if what they think is consonant with Sharia law and the Constitution, again, is tolerance and all of that, then that's fine. If they want to advocate something that is not presently in our laws, and putting aside constitutionally, they just want to have a politician advocate it, like passing a law that makes it legal to beat your wife, what I'd say to them is go ahead and run for office and, and declare that as your platform for your candidacy. I'm running on the Beat My Wife uh, platform. That's the American way. And see how they do, see how many votes they get. You know, instead of trying to claim that something is constitutional and then use the courts, um, you know, to, it's kind of an activist thing. I mean, they want the courts to define right. the Constitution so that it suddenly they find in there a clause that says it's okay for someone to beat their wife. But on that note, let me welcome aboard Patrick. Patrick? Uh, th thank you, Chuck and uh, Karen. Thank you for returning uh, to um, uh, our humble little radio program here. And, and also want to remind our, our listeners that you are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and you can be part of this, 424-675-6806, or email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. Well, I, I'm a little confused by this whole thing. Um, no other country's law, no other religion's law, no other law except American law and the Constitution that have any standing in the United States. I'm not even sure why this is being discussed. Right. The, the reason it's being discussed is that through multiculturalism and tolerance as vehicles, the, some Muslims, and I'm talking about an activist political part of the community now, are asking Americans to accommodate and accept things that do not conform to our customs, our constitutional principles, or the way we live as Westerners. So as, as these situations come up in court or within the culture, um, we're, we're, we have been making marginal accommodations. And when you look at what's played out in the U.K., Germany, and France, it is the same kind of pattern 
where a large enough Muslim community within an area begins to ask for, you know, whatever it is. Um, recently it was the, I, I think one of our, our most relatable cases that, that people may have read about would be the teacher that wanted to go on Hajj. Mm-hmm. And and so she she was uh, given that by the time the DOJ and EEOC joined forces and you know jumped on this small town school district and said um, we we really you know think this is an accommodation that you should make or you're not defending your reasons for not doing it well enough when it was something exceptional and beyond anything that the Supreme Court had ever upheld that our laws had ever um, evidenced in case law. So this is where it's not going to be a ballot initiative. You know, we're not, it's, it, and it wasn't in Europe. It's always a matter of it, it's intolerant if you don't give us this, therefore give us this, and gee, it's not such a big deal anyway. But some of us are very concerned about freedom of speech, religion, and what our practices are and how everyone should be treated equally, and there shouldn't be special groups just because there's a complaint of intolerance. Well, uh, there are a lot of requests from special groups for accommodations. I know sure. that ultra-Orthodox in, in um, Brooklyn, Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, have asked for segregated public schools, and they've been turned down on that. Sure. The ultra-Orthodox in, in, um, in Brooklyn have also asked for segregated public buses. They've been turned down on that. The Amish, however, in Pennsylvania do get some accommodations, uh, but but they're very minor, they're around the edges, and they have no constitutional questions attached to them. The, uh, the public schools, of course, would have a constitutional question. Whether or not you can ride on a public road in a, uh, a horse and buggy, uh, it does not raise a constitutional question. So I, I, I see no, I think it's a free speech right of everybody in the country to be able to ask. I mean, we are uh, allowed to uh, oh, assemble sure. and address our government. But uh, any time there's any kind of a constitutional question involved, the answer is automatically no, as far as I'm concerned. This is where I I find that I slightly disagree with with both of you in that um, I don't really mind if this teacher gets gets permission to go in the Hajj. Um, It's a matter of whether or not she can go to a court and demand that permission. But at the same time, I generally think that we can make accommodations as much as possible as long as it's within private contracts between individuals and, and, and groups. And as far as Orthodox Jews, it only applies to their own little community. It's not They're not calling for the whole country to segregate buses. No, but they're still publicly supported schools and publicly supported buses. Wanna, that's, that's where the constitutional but problem I, comes Well, from. whether it's a constitutional, that's a, a question. But I just want to make sure that we know what we're talking about here. They're talking about... An area where you know 99% of the population is wants this, and that's where they live, and and it's it's kind of like a local issue where their tax money is going to pay for local services, and they want the local services to reflect their local community. But, but that's it's not right. just their that's tax exactly. money; it's the tax money of everybody in New York City. It's not just their tax that's money, and it's not exactly. their neighborhood either. It's actually not New York City; it's it's, Bro- think, it's Brooklyn. Right. No, it's not Brooklyn either. I think it's Muncie. But um, or it's a suburb of New York. Well, wherever it is, it's not their neighborhood. They don't own it. And oh, I understand. I just want to differentiate between that and this idea that there's a legal obligation for the whole country or for a state yeah. to observe something. And they're not even necessarily bringing it to court. They're not asking for something no. legally. They're asking... 
the local community to accommodate them, and I generally think that local communities should try to accommodate. Uh, I disagree. What's, okay, thank you. What's, hap- what's happened with the, the family law issues goes to exactly what you're both discussing. Um, marriages are a contract, and so are the um, prenuptial, antenuptial agreements as to what happens when a marriage dissolves and what happens with the children. Um, Many of these Muslim marriages do not make it into American courts, but more and more they do. And so we have these um, customs where, for example, talaq, the man repeats three times, I divorce you, and, and that's a divorce. So our judges struggle with, you know, this is religious law. They are not allowed to decipher religious law. They can't go into that domain at all. And so it is, it is, it's tempting on, on, on a basis of what we call comedy to say, okay, I'll accept the terms of what you've already done into this. Um, but the problem is, as soon as we do that, we've, we're, we're continuing to institutionalize a system where women, by you know, entire, you know, from the beginning of the structure where most were under age, where most um, had not met the man before they were promised to marry the person, um, these kinds of things have been built in from the very beginning of the way this contract was formed, and it is extremely difficult for our courts to unravel it all. So they're, what they're doing is saying, okay, I've got to balance whether I accept this in comedy is, is the legal term, or do I look to the public policy of my state and say this is offensive to public policy and it's too vague, and it, you know, then they go to those constitutional standards and say this is not something that can be upheld in this court. We're going to default to our community property standards, our law, our state, exactly. you know, state family law. Exactly. There shouldn't be a, be a question under the Constitution. Re- religious law has no place in, in um, uh, jurisprudence, period. But we do it have, doesn't matter whose it is. No, so, we I, do. No question. And certainly well, in Judaism, there's also courts that are called the Beit Din, and that people have marriages uh, that uh, can be dissolved under Jewish law. It's called getting a get. and. Uh, right. These are customs that are very different than our secular law. But I don't think that, that um, in Jewish law they're holding up um, going to, to uh, the secular court over these things. Right. I mean, of course, there's a little scandal going on, I think, in Israel over this, and that some people actually are getting uh, secular divorces but remaining married under Jewish law so they can get welfare. Well, there should there should not never there should be any question at all if uh, if a man or a woman uh, and first of all I should say there is no such thing as a Muslim marriage. There is marriage under the laws of marriage and divorce in our country. It doesn't matter whether who what the religion is of the people. It's a contract. It's a civil contract. It's not Muslim. It's not anything. It's American. And the two people involved can avail themselves of of uh, American divorce law. And any but, judge who thinks differently should be thrown off the bench, as far as I'm concerned. But, now that we have hundreds of thousands, at least tens of thousands of Muslims that are marrying and establishing families under Islamic marriage rules, well, they shouldn't be it. They, they, they can't are. do that. No. Well, then they should leave. They should go to a country in which they no, can they, do that. They have a right. No, they don't have a right. No. They, no. We have American law. There is no religious law right. in American law. They can't do that. No, they can't, they, they have can't it do that. They can't have it adjudicated under American law. Yeah. Civil and secular rules, but they can have a Muslim marriage. 
I have a Jewish marriage. They can have a Muslim marriage ceremony. It's still an American contract. But, but look, Patrick, I have a Jewish marriage and a secular marriage. They're two different things. No, there is a two, Jewish contract and there's a secular contract. Well, it, it does, but the only legal contract is the secular contract. I agree. Okay. The point is that I also can fall fall under the various rules of the Jewish side of the contract, and there are rabbis that can make rulings on that. I'm not. The difference is that I don't think that in, I know in, that in Judaism they're not trying to bring these issues into the secular courts, but there are right. Jewish marriages and there are Muslim marriages, and that is a right. And there have been examples of Jewish marriages that have come into the secular courts, but the civic courts have said, we, and they draw the line at, we will not require that someone conform to a religious practice. So when they're trying to... They're trying to enforce a get. The the courts will stop at that point and say, no, we cannot require that someone fulfill a religious commitment or obligation. Exactly. So yeah. it has the courts have been drawing the the proper line, and and there are some comparisons to Jewish marriages, but the problem with what's happened with the Islamic marriages is the number of those, the number that are becoming um, accepted within our courts. And and so those of us that are studying this are publishing the examples. Most have been overturned in the appellate courts, so so we are catching it as they go to appeal. But as we know, not all cases go to appeal. And and so this is just a segment, but this is what exactly what is played out in Germany, where they're just now astounded at the level of mm-hmm. Islamic law that's been practiced within their culture oh, that, that in, in, in these pockets, which are now enclaves, which are now um, fairly substantial parts of communities, where there is no recognition of German law. Well, and that is sure the problem. That, happen here. That, 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 that can't happen in the United States. What is it about this town hall that you, you wrote about um, that um, uh, Representative Lorena Sanchez conducted and she wouldn't allow it to be videotaped? Actually, she was one of six public officials. Uh, there was a U.S. attorney, there were two, Sheriff Libaka, and then the LAPD counterterrorism chief Downing, as well as three congresswomen. Um, but at the point that Loretta Sanchez was, divided, was um, uh, invited to the podium, she looked at a gentleman in the audience and picked him out, even though others were videotaping, and said, are you official? And he said, no, you know, would you like me to turn the video off? She said, yes, we follow the rules here. So as a constitutional civil rights attorney, I was, I was really surprised by her reference to rules and the fact that as a public official, when it's an open town hall meeting, there aren't rules that, that apply to members of the public who are wanting to record or um, know, understand um, what their public officials are saying and doing. So um, I, you know, the defense that she would have legally would be I expected that I had a right to privacy in that environment, which uh-huh. could not possibly have been the case. No, there's no right to privacy. First of all, she's a public official, and secondly, you're in a right. public town hall. I mean, right, uh, and she there... was in her public capacity, as yeah. were the other five. Um, of course, Sheriff Baca's got his own problems, but uh, uh, were, there, were there other media there who were recording the meetings? Apparently, somebody has posted on YouTube since then, and it looks like um, a small media outlet. But it was hard to tell based on um, – I've looked at the, the DVD of the video, and it's hard to tell that anybody else was media. And there were several other videographers, a lot of cameras, some audio tapes. 
Um, and so she just singled out this one person that she decided was not going to be allowed to continue videotaping. Yeah, it's too bad he didn't contest that. I, I, I see the uh, the video on here, too. Uh, wh- why do you think that, that well, first of all, what was the purpose of the hearing? And secondly, why do you think she didn't want it uh, videoed? I the the hearing was one of the first of the series that will be rolled out across the country according to ISNA that will address Sharia and the Constitution. But I guarantee you, after listening to the entire um, program, there was no mention other than the Constitution means, and this is, quote, tolerance, equality, and freedom of religion and freedom of speech. I mean, there was no analysis. They didn't invite anybody who knows the Constitution to challenge events and the, the activist Muslim agenda on freedom of speech on equal rights for women. They didn't this was all a matter of, of mistreatment of the Chinese in the exclusion acts. It was held on the date of the Japanese internment um, recognition and it was all of grievances um, that Muslims should have and do have against the US government for profiling, for holding hearings, for asking about radicalization. That's what the content was. Okay. Uh, we have to take a, uh, a quick break. Chuck, do you want to continue after the break? Sure. Okay, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Block Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates. And we will be back in a moment. Chuck and Patrick, and uh, Chuck, I wanted just to mention our sponsor. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Barton Publishing, uh, uh, which you can contact at Barton at www.bartonpublishing.com. Barton Publishing is your way to get the information you need to manage your health and your body without using expensive or possibly toxic drugs. That's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. And don't forget when you order on Barton Publishing, in the coupon box that comes up. When you put in your order, put in the word fairness, and you'll get a discount. Uh, Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest is Karen Lugo. Um, again, the article is Sharia and the Constitution. Um, Karen, look, I, I think that um, it's one – I mean, I'm out, outraged that um, that the Muslim community would try to use the laws and the Constitution to in any way implement Sharia law, but having said that, I mean I support their right as a as a religion and as a private group to live by Sharia law as long as it's not um, contradicting our secular law, which it would, does. would if they start beheading homosexuals. But um, also, I, I de- generally lean in favor of communities and institutions trying to accommodate people of faith. When they uh, when they ask for various accommodations, the only problem I have with it is if they if the people of faith go to the secular courts and start to demand that and claim that these things are enshrined in the Constitution and try to get judges to declare that as such. That's where I draw the line. And that's where the rub is with our our free society: the fact that we uphold and we fiercely defend freedom of speech 
and equal treatment. And when it comes to the agenda of Sharia, freedom of speech, when it comes to criticizing Islam, or as we know, um, representing the Prophet or burning a Quran, the things that are not legal in this country, that they would impose their own rules of, of what they call blasphemy, um, those things become a, a very serious issue. I, I don't know if you were aware in the U.K. just last week a man was sentenced to prison for having put up anti-Islamic pictures in the front window of his home. Um, so at the same time they're telling students you can't wear a cross to the, the public school, they have not just fined, but, but there was a prison term involved for this man who had had these posters in his front window. So we, as a Western culture, as we see these conflicts coming that are very real in other Western countries, it is extremely important, and this is all I want to do. We need to have the conversation, but it's got to get down to a level where we're talking about exactly in America what we expect by the standards and principles of our Constitution versus Sharia. And I'm not talking here about the religious Muslims who do not have an agenda to promote or, or see Sharia installed in the United States. Those Muslims are not a problem. They're the majority. I don't. I'm with you. There is no issue when it comes to freedom of religion and practicing one's religion. It is this agenda that has to do with advancing the, the political elements of Sharia that is a problem and that I cannot get Muslim leaders to go on record they won't talk to me about it. They won't. When I, I present Sharia as practiced in other countries and ask if they denounce these things that would clearly be outrageous to American sensibilities, they won't repudiate or denounce them. And that is what is most shocking to me. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, Sheikh Raouf of the uh, Ground Zero Mosque refused to denounce Hamas when right. asked several times. But uh, I think that we may be moving in that direction in this country uh, in terms of banning what you might euphemistically call hate speech because of hate crimes legislation. Um, right. it, it, it's taken our entire judicial system, which is always based upon criminal activity, and it's converted it to one that's much more typical of a communist country, which is political crimes. In other words, crimes right. of thought or crimes of expression. We, we always have had certain very, very specific hate crimes laws going all the way back to the, the founding of the country. And, and the one that I would specifically mention that I think is fine is that you're not allowed to express murderous intent against the president of the United States. Right. You know, it's sort of what, what um, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, you know, you know a free speech stops when, when one yells fire in a crowded theater. But uh, recent developments with regard to hate crimes now means that um, a person can be prosecuted or if they do commit a crime and they can prove that there's a hate element to it, their uh, prosecution can double in terms of the amount of, of, uh, of liability a person could face if, if they can show that they were thinking hatefully or that they had expressed what could be called hateful or unpopular opinion as part of their commission of the crime. So, you know, I think that, I mean, there's a case going on right now in New Jersey where this guy videotaped his roommate secretly kissing another man, and then he put it up on YouTube, and this poor guy committed suicide. He should be charged with a crime, but because of 
the prosecution adding the element of a hate crime to that, claiming that he had something against gay people, that sentence apparently could be doubled. He could end up doing 10 years in prison, whereas if it was not uh, the hate crime element, it would have been maybe three to five years in prison. So, you know, we're moving in that direction in this country, I think. There, there already so wait, wait, is wait, a wait, legislative... Wait, just a second. Um, hate speech in the United States is... Um, uh, laws prohibiting hate, hate speech in the United States are unconstitutional in the U.S. Um, uh, outside of obscenity, defamation, or what they call fighting words that that, that incites violence. And there's a number of court cases on that. And uh, in that particular case, New Jersey, uh, he was doing more than just ki- ki- kissing a man. Uh, and we'll see whether or not that, that, that the prosecutor's uh, case stands up there. The judge hasn't ruled on that yet. But basically, hate speech is unconstitutional in this country. And I completely... Um, uh, agree with that. I think that uh, my response to any religious organization that doesn't like uh, something somebody else says about them, or a movie or a book, is to write their own book, produce their own movie, or say what they want. But we get to say what we want. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Exactly. The problem. The problem is that there are already legislative attempts um, right now, mostly city council, county areas. Some states have looked at it. We have a Supreme Court justice that's that condoned this and then backed off. But a so move to uh, Justice Breyer at one point last uh, this was in 2011. He said that he in a TV interview that that freedom of speech might be stopped at the point the protection of speech might be stopped at the point that the speech incited violence. Now, he backed off and said that his words were not the the best chosen later on. But this is exactly where cities and counties, in some cases, are going. There is a move, and it it is uh, somewhat backed by this um, OIC, Organization of Islamic Countries, who just came to New York a few months ago to have this big confab on defamation. But it all has to do with incitement now. It's not you look all over Europe where they're having the speech problems. They have, they've criminalized, quote, incitement to hate. Well, so see, that's, this that's, puts a, you... that's a catch-22. If I say something that, that you don't like and you, you perpetrate violence on me for it, I'm wrong for saying it? No, that, 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 that doesn't work. You're wrong for, for doing the violence. Yeah, but, but look at what we've agree done. On this, but the point is that there are people who are advocating these hate crimes laws. In fact, Congressman Barney Frank has actually submitted a bill several times in several congressional sessions to implement hate crimes legislation. So... I think you're technic- hate, hate crimes or hate speech. There's a difference. Well, whatever. Yeah, no, there's, it, it, it's a major difference, Chuck. Put it this way: the hate speech would lead to adding to a, a criminal se- a sentence for a crime that's been committed. But was that yep. the laws that he introduced would say would say that? Yeah, oh, they would. Yeah. In, so in other words, if you if you commit a crime of violence and it is found that your motivation or your thoughts were based upon hatred for the person. Uh, based on race, creed, color, whatever, then the, then that is an additional crime that could be added to your sentence. You can look it up. Okay. Right. And, uh, and and again, I mean, this is uh, you're, you're technically right that I don't think it is the law of the land right now, but there are people that are advocating it. It is being tested not just in New Jersey, but apparently in several cases around the country, and that it's something that uh, we, we see coming down the pike. So, you know, well, the, the, stopped. I agree. But uh, w- 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 but this would be consonant with the agenda of those who are advocating Sharia law. 
One of the statements by Congresswoman uh, Sanchez at this town hall in Garden Grove was to talk about, as she referred to the King hearings, she said they had but one purpose, and that was to humiliate and offend the cultural integrity of the Muslim community in America. Now, when you have a congresswoman who is saying something like this about a legitimate hearing where Congressman King had already canceled some of his witnesses because there was concern that they might be too anti-Islamic. When these people were criminal scientists who have been tracking these things for years, um, and, and some, you know, there wasn't even a quote that could be called um, you know, sensational in the sense of being anti-Islamism. But those people were canceled, anybody that was considered, quote, controversial. So essentially his hearing was a matter of parents who talked about their children being radicalized and, and murdering because of it, and, and Dr. Zudi Jasser, an American Muslim who is patriotic and, and was there defending the NYPD a few days ago, saying we want investigations. Yep, you bet. So... It, and and there were others. Ms. Namani is phenomenal, as is Urshad Manji. And so all these, you know, very um, thoughtful American Muslims that are saying, we want the investigation, we want to know where radicalization is coming from, they are thwarted by people like Congresswoman Sanchez, who says this was, quote, a witch hunt. So we have to, if we're going to stop this and 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 inspect and have transparency and look at these issues and be able to discuss them rationally, reasonably. We have to be able to do this without being called, you know, witch hunters or intolerant Islamophobes, all the rest of this, which, of course, is, as you know, shuts down the discussion. You can't have the discussion in this country as soon as somebody throws that blanket over it. Well, I, we need to get uh, Congresswoman um, uh, Sanchez's uh, side to this, before, and which we can't do, uh, obviously, today. But uh, uh, I agree with you that, that, that this continues to this, – this conversation uh, is necessary, continues, uh, and we need to continue it, but always within the framework that the Constitution trumps everything and that no religious law has, can have any standing at all in the United States, that the Constitution is the only law that we – we abide by, and if people don't like what other people say, then they should just respond with their own words or movies or books. Well, look, and I mean, no, is... no theological law can stand by, but if, if again, if, if a Muslim wants to advocate a, a policy, uh, you know, that, you know, if they want to say we, we're the wife-beating party, let them, you know, go, let them uh, run for office, yeah. see, see what kind of support they get. Yeah, but, uh, of course. Just my, my, my... As long as they don't beat their wives while they're doing it. That's right. <laughs> I mean, my, my, I suspect, and this is a, an observation, maybe an opinion of mine, but that the those who are advocating the Sharia laws in this country, uh, the Muslim organizations like CARE, for example, they are trying to appeal to the left. And uh, they're trying to use language like, you know, discrimination and uh, racism and this sort of thing. I saw this recently when I stood and picketed outside an event at Harvard uh, where I held up a sign and I, I talked to people going in and out, the One State Solution Conference. Um, and, and I think that they're making inroads there. I know even on this program I have been attacked um, or by somebody, Patrick, we had on about a year ago who actually is a friend of yours because he said very sneeringly and very condescendingly, the conservatives think that someone is trying to implement Sharia law in America. What do you think of that? 
And I think that, uh, you know, there's kind of this um, tactic, if you will. Um, you know, there's a professor at uh, Georgetown University who sits in the endowed chair endowed by the Saudis, who I would, cons- I would claim is a stooge of the Saudis, who uh, had, we had an interview with him and it had that same tonality. Anybody who disagreed with him was a racist, sexist, homophobe, you know, this kind of like cant that appeals to the left. And I wonder if they're, if they're, this again is my opinion, are they getting success in that way? Definitely. Uh, it, the the three congresswomen that were at this town hall were all on the left. Um, the entire um, theme was that anything related to inquiring or the kinds of, of hearings that Congressman King had, had produced and hopefully is continuing um, to pursue were profiling that it was a matter of targeting a community, and the theme was, just like with what happened to the Japanese, we must all stand together. There was no distinction made between the Japanese situation, um, and in fact, it was Congresswoman Chu, and it was Waters or Chu that said that, um, that the Japanese were put into concentration camps. Um, there, when it comes to historical clarity and understanding that, yes, that was a mistake, should not have been done, we have apologized, and under President Reagan, reparations were paid. There is a difference between that and a current threat where, as an example, in Sacramento this last week, a young girl was killed by her fiancé. She wasn't killed in Sacramento. She lives there, and the, the funeral was just there. Um, but she was killed because her family says the fiancé is part of a terror ring and she would not help to get him into the country. Um, so if we don't have people watching activities like this, if this girl had married this man to get him into the country, and, and you have to assume, you have to expect that these things are going on, and if nobody is watching, if we're not allowed to monitor Muslim groups where there is activity that to the NYPD, for example, looks like radicalization or looks like somebody's coming into the country, um, not just for a legitimate marriage, we have opened ourselves up not only to a political agenda, but of course to the violence of a, a future jihad. So this is where Americans become very insecure because we have an entire part of the left that just wants to shut down the conversation and call anyone who is advancing the inquiry um, an Islamophobe or worse. Well, as a card-carrying member of the left for for most of my life since since high school, uh, I I kind of reject a little bit of that. Uh, I I do recognize that that, that there is that position among some people on my my side of the of, of the political spectrum, but there are also a lot of people on the other side of the political spectrum who are appalled at the uh, at, at many of the Islamic customs and at, at many and parts of Sharia law, and will have absolutely nothing to do with it. Now, in the case you're talking about, there, you know, th- uh, that could just as easily have been uh, somebody who was uh, uh, engaged to uh, a member of the IRA too. Uh, uh, and, and the question here is, are you? going after a particular community because of its religion or are you going after a group of people because there is reasonable cause to, uh, for suspicion and if it's reasonable cause for suspicion that's quite a right but if you're going to go after everybody in, in the country who's a uh, who's a muslim uh, then that's not a right that's unconstitutional that's also contrary to american principles now uh, 
I agree that you can't always tell tell the difference. Uh, sometimes you have to err on the on the side of uh, caution, and sometimes you have to err on the side of of defending Americans from from violence, and and that's a judgment call. But the, what it really breaks down to is that Muslims are not the only people. Uh, uh, Muslim terrorists or Islamists are not the only people in the United States who perpetrate violence. We have to remember we've had a number of, of um, abortion doctors murdered by anti-abortion radicals. We've also seen uh, militias attack and kill members of the policemen, right-wing uh, pro-Christian militias. So they're, they're not the only ones. But they, it comes down to are you attacking a religion or are you uh, are you investigating a group of people who with who have a reasonable suspicion of being involved in illegal activities and and as long as that's the case then we go along with that now on the the new york police um i, I think that the and this is my opinion uh, and and this also the opinion of um, of governor christie too the new york police are surveilling a muslim mosque in, in new jersey and randomly taking pictures and randomly following people that to me is a violation of of rights that's a violation of the fourth amendment However, if they had information that specific mosques were being used as organization points for possible violence, then that would be different. The police have never said that they had that, and as far as we can tell, it was random. So you have to draw those lines. In this country, we don't attack religious groups. Uh, we don't attack Jews. We don't attack Catholics. We don't, and there have been times in our past when we have, and fortunately we're over that. Now, I, but we can defend ourselves against organizations that uh, do want to take on uh, violence against us. We just have to make sure that we're drawing that line. Patrick, I think that what you're saying, you've asked and answered the question, and that this is not about their religion. This is about a uh, violence, a conspiracy to engage in violence against Americans, and it's about practices that uh, run outside of American secular law. Sure. And that this this is a much bigger conspiracy than the Black Panthers or the Weather Underground or some of these left wing radicals who have blown up, who have killed people recently, like that woman in 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 in, in um, Alabama who shot all of her coworkers. That being Amy uh, Bishop. This is much more of a systemic problem because it's an international conspiracy, and I think that uh, that's what's being looked at. Not people peaceably going to a mosque and praying. This but, but, that, but those find people are being surveilled. Because, a lot, because there's evidence, according to the FBI, that there's been a radicalization of Muslim imams. And, I, you know, I can speak to this in Boston. There's been many cases uh, underreported for some reason. We have, and we have one minute, Chuck. And that's what they're looking at. Anyway, Karen Lugo, I want to thank you for joining us. Where can people get uh, read your work and find out more about your group? My columns are up on townhall.com. And so all you have to do is look at Town Hall Karen Lugo if you're Googling, and I think I have about 15 up there now. I'm currently working on one that will go in regarding the NYPD and the regime that Ray Kelly scrupulously followed, which actually didn't even go as far as the Constitution would allow. So right. that will be out in a couple of days. Thank you for joining us, Karen Lugo. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Karen. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you.
back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and on our radio affiliates. But they're in a news break right now, so we'll be right back with our, our radio affiliates in, in a few minutes. In the meantime, I want to remind you of, of, of one of our sponsors. That's That would be Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com, your place for information and how to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive and uh, possibly toxic drugs. Barton Publishing produces an entire list of of materials, books, information that you can use to manage your body in ways that are natural. And, in fact, uh, we've had experience here on this show. Chuck has been has used one of their uh, their information packets quite successfully, and I'm sure he'll be happy to tell you about it. But I want to remind you that if you go to www.bartonpublishing.com, you will see an entire page of uh, different kinds of information. You can look it up under disease. You can look you can uh, look up under um, common cold or rheumatism or arthritis or many many other things that uh, we would just as soon not have and right. happen to us. You can order information online, and when you do, don't forget, in the coupon box, put the word fairness, and you'll get a discount. That's Barton Publishing, www.bartonpublishing.com. And, Chuck, you've had some good experiences, Barton, haven't you? I have, and my question quickly, Patrick, is do we have a link up now to our our website for Barton Uh, Publishing? Well, let's see. They sent us one, and it was sent to our engineer, and... um, we should get that. Well, yeah, I don't think that's that's up yet. Yeah, I'm waiting for that to go up before yeah. I start to really promote that. But, yes, Barton Publishing. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, oh, we have there. It. Right oh, there. Excellent. Right underneath our contributing editor's pictures. So if you'd like more information, go to fairnessradio.com and click on our new banner for Barton Publishing and uh, check out their excellent products. And also, if you happen to be on our on our website, you can click on Listen Live, and it's, if it's not uh, when we're live on the air, it'll take you to our archives, and you can download us as a podcast, as many people do, as a matter of fact. Yes. Patrick, I want to bring up one little issue that came, uh, that emanated in my mind from our interview just now with Karen Lugo. Okay. You mentioned that you feel that the Constitution of the United States is the highest uh, is the law of the land, and that any foreign um, body of law should never be considered unless, uh, unless we sign a treaty, obviously, and the Congress, uh, Congress goes along with it. I don't know if you know. I think you know where I'm going here. No, I'm not sure. Okay, uh, because uh, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, we don't want to see a hair on his head hurt because there's just news coming in on the Drudge Report that he's landed in Afghanistan and there was a car bomb. Yeah, it was he, he's plane. fine. Yeah, but. There's a uh, he just uh, was involved in congressional testimony in front of Senator William Sessions, um, and this is all over YouTube right now. I don't know if you know about this, where the senator asked him where he got authority to uh, engage in uh, potential wars, and also in the past in the war in Libya, and he said that he derived his authority from our international bodies and from from a consensus of other nations and the UN and uh, Senator Sessions said excuse me but what about Congress you know we have a constitution in this country Congress is supposed to be consulted first and there's supposed to be at least this I mean even you know any president even those who don't call for the um, the war powers uh, resolution they at least have a level of advice and consent uh, you know, at bare minimum, when there is any act of war, 
And uh, Secretary Panetta argued with him and said, no, we, uh, we look to the allies uh, for this, and then we inform Congress. Now, Patrick, you have to see this. It's on YouTube. Uh, I it's saw it. Yeah, I saw it. Now, doesn't this go to every, exactly what you're talking about? Where does He said that we derive legal authority from – and by the way, I'm not here to single out Panetta and, and the Obama administration. There have been people who have been of this mindset in both parties going all the way back. Um, you know, really it goes back to Woodrow Wilson. But uh, this is something that goes very much to the very core of what you're talking about. They don't, there is no legal authority to go to war other than the U.S. Constitution and our representatives in Congress. Well, well, well let, let, let's, let's quote everything accurately here, okay? Sure. All right. Um, well, first of all, we have to remember that, that I'm quoting the president now, President um, uh, Obama. Right. The president does not have the power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. That's what the president said. So now the other day when, when uh, Leon Panetta appeared before Congress, um, he said, quote, before resorting to military action, the administration would need legal basis to act, such as a U.N. resolution or a NATO involvement. Senator Jeff Sessions, as you pointed out, asked Panetta whether congressional approval might be necessary. Panetta was repeatedly clear. He said, no. He said, no. Mm. Do you think, then uh, um, Sessions asked him again, do you think that you can act without Congress and initiate a no-fly zone in Syria without congressional approval? Replied Panetta, our goal would be to seek international permission. We would then come to Congress and inform you whether or not we would get permission from the Congress. I think those are issues we would have to discuss. So he was talking specifically about a no-fly zone, not about launching a war. Well, Patrick, first of all, a no-fly zone is an act of war by any definition of, uh, uh, of international law and custom. But the first part of his comment was addressing the issue of war, and he said that he would look to NATO and he'd look to other authorities and then inform Congress. Yes, that's true, and, and I don't quite understand what he's, what he's talking about there, it's particularly since it contradicts what the president says. Maybe, but uh, we're talking about the testimony of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I know, and he may go to the woodshed with the president for it, too. And, and how he views things. I mean, this is, it's, I think it's quite clear what he meant. Yeah. He meant that we look to other legal, in order to gain legal sanction, for various acts of war, we look to these outside authorities, and then we inform Congress. Well, he's wrong, and the president has said he's wrong. He should resign. That is, you know, it's more because he is the Secretary of Defense. I know. It's, uh, you know, this would be like a, a, a general. tell. This is like what Douglas MacArthur did to Truman. Okay. He, um, you know, he basically called Truman on the carpet. He said, hey, I have the authority, not you. You're the president, but I'm going to decide what to do. He was, you know, Truman fired him. I, I understand. You know, so we shall see what happens. Obviously, the president has, has said he's wrong. Well, what do you think should be done? Nothing? I mean, well, what do you mean by nothing? I mean, this was, well, the first statement, thing, this was a statement in the course of congressional testimony by a secretary of defense who basically said to Congress, we don't have to look to you uh, for authorization in engaging in uh, War policy. We look to other other entities 
for legal authority, and then we inform you. Yeah, I, 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 I read it. I know exactly what he said. You asked me what I think we should do. We yeah. being, I, I think you mean the nation? Yeah, the nation and Congress, well, and the president for that matter. Well, let's, let's, well Congress can't do much about it uh, within their authority. Uh, it would be up to the president. I think the president should definitely make it clear to um, to both the secretary and to Congress and to the people of the United States that that is not the official policy and that uh, the the secretary of defense will not be uh, operating under that, that policy from now on. Whether or not he needs, he needs to resign, I don't know. I realize that, that, that the right is jumping up and down and screaming that they want him to resign, which would be a great thing to happen before an election. I suspect that's not going to happen. But I think the president should make clear that this is not the policy and that we are not going to operate this way. Which he hasn't done. And also, Well, I just quoted him saying that. Yeah, but this is before those comments. Yeah, well. He, hasn't, so he has not responded since uh, Panetta made those comments in public at a congressional hearing. And regardless of being an election, Anyone who makes such a statement, the the uh, you know they should have to resign. I mean, no matter when, who's in power, uh, in power. But I think it goes to a bigger issue, Patrick, which is in fact, and maybe I'm putting on my tin hat here. I'll admit. Okay. <laughs> but I think that we don't. Uh, this nation. Oh, oh, wait, to... hold it. We have to bring in our radio uh, listeners. Okay. Sorry. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. And, of course, let me welcome aboard our radio listeners at WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in, in uh, Ashland, Oregon. Uh, Blog Talk Radio, Fairness Doctrine, Fair, what am I saying? Fairness Radio, God forbid. Uh, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m., Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm not bad at all. It's a, it's a good show. We've got Dave Johnson coming up and talk about uh, some interesting problems on, on Wall Street, and uh, we have a, a good conversation going on war power. So it's a good show, a good day. We're talking about Leon Panetta's Secretary of Defense testimony in Congress where he said that uh, he would derive legal authority for war to, with uh, foreign entities and foreign consensus and then inform Congress. We agree that that's not the right thing to have said. It's not constitutional. Patrick, I, I, would, I wonder, and again, maybe I'm again putting my tin hat on here, but um, I think that that is how things are done now in this country. It's not just uh, Obama either. You know, no, it's been done that way for some time. Congress has been, uh, is no longer in power when it comes to uh, international affairs. Uh, it, it's all handled. I think it's been. I think it was. It goes back to 1945, when we signed an agreement with the UN. Uh, you know, this is this is just a little glimpse at a public exposure. I mean, this is one of those opportunities where we get a little glimpse underneath the hood, so to speak. Well, every every president has done his best to avoid Congress getting in in the way of what the president wants to do militarily. Reagan did the same thing when he supposedly wanted to rescue some students from an obscure island and invaded it. Uh, Johnson did the same thing with, with Vietnam. Um, that this, is, this is not unusual. Presidents do not want Congress to be able to circumscribe their ability to have, to have war. Um, and it's just many, and presidents seem to think that the Constitution is inconvenient. Uh, I disagree. The Constitution is not inconvenient. So presidents, and, uh, and this again is uh, both parties, have come up with ways to get involved in hostilities without, make, without calling it war. Now, North the, Korea was a police action, that's if right. you'll recall. It, yeah, but they had congressional approval, and, uh, 
and I think that it, it was it, that was the first time we did have a war without a, a formal declaration, as due to the very treaty I mentioned with the UN. Yeah. Johnson got congressional approval. It was called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, even though it was a complete lie. It was approved by Congress, as was World War One, which was also a complete lie, approved by Congress. As far as Reagan's uh, rescue of the students in Grenada, he got congressional approval. What happened was that he met with a bipartisan group of congressmen, enough to hold a quorum, in secret in the war room at the White House. He called them in. They came in, both Democrats and Republicans. He explained what was happening. He said, we can't really talk about this publicly because we're, we, we need to rescue these people. They had a quorum, and they, and they voted for it, and then it went ahead. Well, that, again, that's not exactly the, the, the Congress uh, voting for it. Technically, maybe it was. But, again, I want to get back to the fact that no president likes this, and no president, incidentally, has said that the War Powers Act is constitutional. They haven't threatened it, but every president has said that if necessary, they will they will bypass the War Powers Act if they feel it's needed for the country. Well, first of all, the War Powers Act is questionably has some constitutional questions. Constitution says that Article One, Section Eight, says that Congress shall declare war. So the War Powers Act is a weakening of that. So it is uh, questionable. And that sure, there's a balance of that's why we have a balance of powers in this country. Presidents often, not all, some of them want to engage in extraordinary adventures around the world, and Congress is there as a representative of the people to try to restrain that. I agree. But the examples that I gave, Patrick, at least at some level involved congressional advice and consent. They involved some congressional vote. That includes Grenada. It did. There was a vote done. It, whereas what Panetta is saying is we don't need to worry about that. We, just, we inform you, and that's exactly how Libya went. Well, uh, actually, well, first of all, we were not engaged in on-the-ground combat in Libya, and Panetta uh, later on pointed out that he was not ceding U.S. decision-making authority to any, uh, to any foreign body. Now, I agree with you that uh, the Congress has to be involved. Now, presidents will say, and not just Democrats, also Republicans, will say that there are situations in which the, the president has to act immediately, that uh, impaneling Congress or going to Congress, even secretly as Reagan did, is not uh, in the best interest. And they, and they point to portions of the Constitution which give them the ability to take uh, an, an immediate action when they consider the threat, there's a serious threat to the nation. And this is, this is a, a, a problem that goes on between Congress and the president constantly. And it doesn't matter which party and which Congress and which president. Well, agreed. I mean, if there's an emergency situation, there's an imminent threat of invasion or something, yes, the president can take an immediate action. It's an emergency. They can declare it a state of emergency. But that's not what, what Panetta was talking about. No, I know. And also, you have a very interesting view of what war is. Yeah, well, that's we, true, We've too. talked about this, and so we should have an, an expert on. Uh, it came up yesterday, your definition of a, uh, of a, a missile strike from Nation A to Nation B, Nation A can't be held responsible for an act of war if they didn't know about it and if it was done by a militia that was not directly under their government. We were talking in that yeah. case about Gaza. Yeah. You also said that you don't consider the Libyan situation to be war because there weren't actual armies on the ground. No, I said they that were we armed. weren't engaged in right, the because war. We, because we were not having – instead of having armies on the ground, we were dropping – bombs and that was from the air so it wasn't a war actually i don't think we were dropping the bombs i think french planes were dropping the bombs we were providing the the um uh, the, the, the satellite intelligence no i think we were i think they were our missiles 
And in fact, there was a lot of talk about how much how expensive they were. They were a hundred million dollars a piece. Okay, well, I, uh, I'll take your facts on that because I can't recall. Yeah, but Patrick, I think that the, if we have someone on either a, a military expert or a judicial or a legal expert, they would tell you that those are considered to be acts of war, uh, both traditionally and at present. Uh, you know, even uh, you know, embargoing a country is an act of war. It's not. Uh, you don't have to have troops on the ground, you know, advancing in tanks to to engage in an act of war. And, and that's uh, those are, uh, you know, con- considerations that go way, way back. I mean, it's not the... But war has changed. And, in fact, we, we can now uh, shoot missiles at countries w- without in- engaging American troops at all. We can do that from, from bunkers inside of uh, Colorado. So war has changed. Yeah, and if we do it, we're engaged in a war. Well... Uh, I I would agree, and I think the country there would would agree too. So we're we're in agreement on this. What we're not in agreement on uh, on is whether or not the secretary should resign or be fired. No, Patrick. By any definition, those things are acts of war. I I, I agreed with you. Well, no, you didn't agree with me on on Libya. You said no, it wasn't because there weren't troops on the ground. And also, the the business in Gaza. Even if the government doesn't directly order its troops to to fire a missile, if there's some subsidiary on their territory firing it. That's still an act of war. If, if it's a subsidiary, if it's a totally independent third party that has nothing to do with the government, that the government would stop if it knew about it, you can't. That's not an act of war. Well, Patrick, we engaged in the war in Afghanistan not because <clears throat> the Afghanistan government was involved in a conspiracy to blow up the World Trade Center, but because they harbored an entity called Al Qaeda. That's right. That's now, right, but I'm that, talking about cases in which we're not harboring anybody, that they're doing that, it in, in violation of the law, and the government doesn't know about it and would stop them if they knew it. Yeah, but it was totally an, uh, uncontroversial to view Afghanistan as having engaged in an act of war against the United States. They were harboring. They were protecting it. Right. They were engaged in that. But that's why Congress, with one vote nay, voted in favor of the Afghan incursion. So what's and your point? My point is that the same situation exists in Gaza. No, it's not the government that's doing it, but in that country, they're responsible for uh, the activities of uh, any militias or, or organizations under their auspices within their borders. But what if they're not under their auspices and they don't know about it and they would stop it if they did know? Well, if they weren't under their auspices, they would not be in Gaza. Well, they in of course country. they're responsible for anything that No, happens. they're not. Well, we just going to disagree. There's no sense in arguing anymore on this, Jack. No, it's a very important point. But the point to you, not to me, I disagree with you, and okay, we're just well, never going to agree on it. We, we, we maybe not, but I – well, we will agree if we get an expert on as soon as possible to talk about this because it's a very important issue. If somebody if, – if, if war activities are launched from nation A to nation B – that's an act of war no matter who does it. If they're doing it from the territory of Nation A, that is considered an act of war. But you can believe that if you want. It's not a matter of believing it, Patrick. We have to get this resolved by people who will, will straighten this out. This is a very important point. Now, you, you, know, you, can, you, know, you can't just make this one up. You know, if, if any nation launches in any form an attack on another nation, that is an act of war doesn't mean that the other nation needs to respond to it, but by international law and custom, it's an act of war. And uh, to, to say otherwise is, is almost favoring war, war policies. I mean, to have a nation say, oh, well, we don't know anything about it, we're not responsible for what happens in our territory, that nation has given up and abrogated its right to sovereignty by any standards. Hello? I'm here. 
I mean, do you, don't you think so? No. No. All right. Well, let me let's just get this straight because we have to have somebody on to straighten this out. Your contention is, and I want to just take notes here, that if an, if somebody launches a military action against another nation from a, a particular nation, then and the government disavows knowledge of it, then they're not responsible, and it's not an act of war. Correct. Okay, fine. Why don't we get somebody on as soon as possible uh, to talk about this? I mean, we probably have time on this program tomorrow where we can clear this up. Well, no, we don't, actually. But uh, well, well, why don't we make time? Because this is a very... But then you'll have to find the expert and go do it then, okay? Well, why don't we both look for... I mean, don't you... Because i got other things to do between now and then. I've already booked guests for the next two days, and I don't want to, to, to spend the rest of the afternoon shuffling people around. You don't think this is an important issue to resolve? Uh, not within the next two days, no. Okay, well, uh, you know, given the conditions in the world and given the conditions in Gaza, even though we have a small program here, who knows how many listeners we have? I don't care. I think that it's something that, that should be resolved. You know, I don't want people to get an impression here that uh, it's okay for a nation to do this or to in any way, you know, harbor it or allow it to happen on their territory. You know, that that's not acceptable. Well, again, if they're not allowing it, if they don't know it, and if they would stop it if they found out, it's not an act of war. You keep forgetting those distinctions. You keep throwing those conditions out. I'll agree with you that if a nation is involved in launching, either by itself or through a proxy, an attack from its territory, it's an act of war. If the nation is not involved in it, does not know about it, and would stop it if it found out, it's not an act of war. That's the bright line I draw. I don't know why you don't understand that. Well, because that's something that doesn't happen. And also, even if that did happen, the nation that has borders that are recognized is responsible for the actions on their territories no, if it goes to another nation. No, they're not. And if they and if they can't control that, then that means that they don't have control over their own nation. Well, a lot of nations don't have control over their own nations. In fact, this, this country has, doesn't have control over everything. That's why we have illegal immigrants and drug smuggling, because we can't control everything that goes on. And uh, when you can control something that goes on inside your country totally, that means you're a dictatorship. No, it's it's what it means is that we recognize that if someone from inside the United States, you know, engaged. I'll give you an example. There was an assassination in Washington, D.C. of a Chilean diplomat many years ago. I forget his name. I, I, I remember that, yes. That was considered to be an act of war. By whom? By Chile, and rightfully, because one of their diplomats, the U.S. Embassy in, in Tehran, I mean, it was attacked not by the government, but by a bunch of rabble on the street. Eventually, the government stepped in and actually took it over, but... That is considered an act of war. I, I don't recall the, uh, Peru declaring war on us for that at, at no, all. No, they didn't, but they had the option to. No, I don't think they did. Yes, they did, no. and it was said at the time. Uh, no, you know, we had w When the American embassy was... Letelier. Excuse me? Uh, the, the guy was named uh, uh, Letelier. It was 1975. Marcus Orlando Letelier. Fine. He was assassinated in an American territory, and I think he was representing a foreign government. That is viewed as an act of war. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we're going to get into a war on either side. Usually people don't. But technically speaking, uh, by international law and, and custom, it is an act of war. Nope. 
uh, and as was the seizing of the American embassy, which was done first by people that were not part of the Iranian government, and the Iranian government denied anything about it. Then eventually they did take responsibility. But it was an act of war. It was an attack on sovereign territory, the American embassy. In the Iranian case, see, you, you keep, you keep for, uh, forgetting about the distinctions. In the Latelier uh, case, it had nothing to do with the United States government. The United States government didn't even know it was going to happen and would have stopped it if it did know about that. In the attack on the uh, U.S. embassy, the Iranian government, there were many agencies of the Iranian government in that, and they later on admitted it. You, if, if the government is not involved and would stop it if they knew about it, it's not an act of war. Well, the, the, in the case of the Chilean situation, again, I think that if, if you have a foreign diplomat assassinated on your territory, it's an act of war, whether the government knows about it or not. Now, that doesn't mean that that war is commenced, um, especially if they didn't know about it, but it can be. It's an act of war. Well, you, 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 know, you, can, you can think that all you want. I disagree. Well, this is something that it's a very important issue because it protects the lives of diplomats around the world because they know that they have this kind of protection, that if they are attacked in a foreign country, that's an act of war. If a UN, I mean, this is why, for example, UN representatives in New York, it's part of why they have immunity for you know local crimes. They're considered foreign nationals, and they're under the auspices of a foreign government. Technically, it's like an embassy, and if they are attacked, it's an act of war. Well, in the Latelier case, uh, there were the, the, the assassinators were caught. Uh, Michael Townley, a U.S. expatriate who had once worked for the CIA, and General Ma uh, Manuel Contreras, former head of a P Peruvian spy agency, and Brigadier General Pedro Espinosa, also of the uh, uh, Chilean spy agency, rather. They were convicted in the United States of murder, not of an act of war, and they, were, they served uh, time in prison. They were convicted under civil law for murder. There was no act of war involved. Well, that's because the Chilean government didn't pursue it that way. Well, but they I, but they had the option to. Uh, I've seen nothing in the reports on it that says that they even thought about that. Well, it's not a matter of thinking about it. It's a matter we're talking again about international law and custom here. It's uh, the the right to pursue it in that way is there because it is an act of war. It, whether most in most cases, especially in a case where. A nation may not know about it or where they take proper action, which this country did. It's not pursued as such. But, you know, it could have gone the other way, too. We might not have taken action. I'm just saying that, obviously, through diplomatic channels, the situation was worked out. But I'm talking here about a very basic legal uh, premise, a very uh, a basic legal function. Uh, and, and every single situation can be adjudicated differently between nations, depending upon the particulars of the situation. But it doesn't take away from the fact that if a nation or, or their citizens or their property are attacked by from nation A to nation B, they can choose to – it is an act of war, and it can be choose to be responded to as such. In most cases, it's not done. But it's not – this isn't just a, a hair-splitting thing. This is a very basic principle of international law that goes all the way back. Well, you and I disagree on that. We'll have to wait till next week. We can have a legal expert on um, because we're out of time on this segment. We're about to have another guest. All right. Then we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dave Johnson.
listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network and Cyber Station USA Network and our radio affiliates. And I want to thank our sponsor, www.bartonpublishing.com. That's Barton Publishing, your answer to how to take care of your health and your body, how to manage your health and your body without resorting to expensive or toxic drugs. And don't forget, if you order information on Barton Publishing, put fairness in the coupon code and you'll get a discount. That's www.bartonpublishing.com. Chuck, I think we have uh, Dave Johnson on the line, so take it away. Hey, Dave, how are you? I'm good. Hey, that music, that music just now was intense. I ran into the bedroom and changed into my wrestling outfit, so <laughs> I'm ready oh, now. Boy. Yeah, well, I got this wrestling thought. mask that's, on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Quite a uh, image, Dave. Uh, right. Too bad right. people can't see me. They say I have a body for radio, and here I am. <laughs> so, Dave, what's uh, what's your latest in terms of articles, and where can people read it? Well, I've been I'm a, a fellow at Campaign for America's Future, and I write mostly at ourfuture.org. O u r f u t u r e dot org. And what I have a we post chemo of, Pardon me. <laughs> I say, what you mean, we chemo savvy? Anyway, go yeah. on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've uh, been writing about. Uh, a problem that uh, unions have been having in the United States as compared to places like Europe and now Australia. Uh, I wrote a piece a while back uh, that was titled, Will American Anti-Labor Policies Infect Europe? And what that was about was that there's this company, Deutsche Telekom, a big telecommunications company in Germany that owns a company in the United States called T-Mobile. And in Germany... You know, they have uh, labor is on the boards of companies. They have uh, pro-labor policies across the country, which is why they're doing so well in Germany. Uh, Their economy is doing well. People are paid much higher than they're paid here, the average worker, uh, and their economy is doing much better than ours. Um, But here, Deutsche Telekom is trying to keep the union out of T-Mobile, and they're doing all kinds of just ridiculous, terrible things, you know, the kinds of things that, that we're used to here, but that are unimaginable in a place like Germany. I mean, they're thinking, why would you want to keep a union out? Look what it's done for our economy. Here, they're, uh, they do all these anti-union tactics. Uh, if there's a rumor that there might be people organizing, they, uh, they bring everybody in and start just bombarding them with all this propaganda and videos and how the union's going to do this to you and the union's going to do that to you and they don't let people talk to each other on the job, and then they start firing people who uh, who look like they might support the union. Uh, so that's what's going on with that. And I wrote about this, and I said, look, you guys in Germany better take a look at what's going on here, because if there's something we've learned in the United States, it's that when your companies get used to doing this in another country, they bring it back. Dave, let now, me what I was, talking about, about I was talking about what we're doing in China, where where we – now have this system where they say, look, you shut up and take it because we can move your job to China, so you got to shut up. Well, they're doing that. You know, they're going to take that back to Germany. And so what I wrote okay. about was now there's another instance of this, an Australian company uh, called the Toll Group that has unions in Australia, but now they're working here. Um, they had a truck driver, a woman who was helping start a union, and they fired her for stopping to go to the bathroom. Okay, for an emergency pit stop at a bathroom, they fired her. 
Okay, and obviously it was because she's a union organizer. And that's an Australian company. So what I wrote this time was titled, Workers of the World, Pay Attention. And I'm just going to read the first two, first couple lines of it, okay? And then, mm-hmm. yeah. There's something happening here. What it is is becoming clear. There's a company blocking a union over there, and that's telling you you've got to beware. Breaking union strikes deep. Back to your country it will creep. It starts when they pay low wages and exploit workers here. Pretty soon you're fighting them there. And then I have a video of Buffalo Springfield doing the – there's something happening here. Too. There. Dave, let me let me just ask you about this T-Mobile situation. Um, first of all, I mean, there was, there was an article in the Drudge Report that I thought of you the other day. I can't find it right now, but it was talking about – Chuck, I love about, that you think of me when you're reading the Drudge Report. Well, this one has to do with you, Dave. I mean, it, it was basically a union, which I can't remember which one. In they the leased me States, once, and it crashed my server. Well, they would. They declared that the that this Chinese, not premier, but but a powerful figure in in the Chinese government, was a great friend of unions. Did you see that? Those? Was the Longshoremen's Union? I saw that today. Ah, yes. Uh, what is? First of all, we, I want to ask you what the heck that's all about. But before we go to that, I want to talk about T-Mobile. There, it's a German company, as you say. It's unionized in Germany, but not unionized in the United States. Now, how many? I mean, do they? Do they? What percentage of their employees are in the United States? Well, all of T-Mobile's employees. See, they own the company T-Mobile. I see. So, but they. So then, it's a German company that owns T-Mobile. Yep. But in 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 Germany, they unionized. What do they do yep. in Germany? In Germany, it's it's the same thing. They, but all the workers are in unions. They get paid much more. They get health insurance. Yeah, I get they that. Get, but my question is, how many? What percentage of their workers, if you take a look at this combined entity, are in Germany, and what percentage are in the United States? Oh, I have no idea. They have, you know, it's the big telecommunications, the AT and T of Germany. But you and know, they're all, would, they're would, all in a union over there. That's what they no, do. No, I understand that. But unions. I mean, I just what I'm trying to get at here, Dave, is that probably most of their work is done in the United States and in no, Germany. No, 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 no. It's just completely. It's a separate company. T-Mobile and all of the things T-Mobile does here, you know, their mm-hmm. their uh, cell phones, uh, the wireless for computers, all of that here is a company they bought, okay? But over there, okay. yeah, they have phone workers, they have uh, Internet workers, et cetera, over there, too, uh, separately. They're all organ- they're all in unions over there. You know, in, in Germany, in no, Europe, I, I, especially I Germany, they even have union people on the boards of directors of companies. No, I, I, in fact, I think they have corporation heads on the boards in, uh, as part of the government, too. But uh, I, well, I guess that what I'm trying to get at then, therefore, let's assume that it's probably about equal as two separate entities. Mm-hmm. The T-Mobile in the United States is not unionized, as you say. There are mm-hmm. other telecommunications companies that are unionized. Like, for example, yeah. is Verizon unionized? Uh, Verizon is mixed. Uh, AT&T is unionized. Sprint is okay. All right. So AT&T is unionized. Um, is uh, are conditions in AT&T substantially better than they are in in terms of if you were working for if I were an employee at T-Mobile versus AT&T, would my job right. be substantially better at AT&T? Would I be getting better pay? Would I be yeah. getting better? I mean, is it really a substantial difference? Yeah, of course. Unions generally bring about a substantial difference. Yeah. 
You see, I'm not so sure about that, and I'm not so sure that the employees of T-Mobile want to unionize either. I mean, I'm sure They're some trying. of them. Do. I'm sure some of them are trying, but I'm not sure that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I you know, having worked uh, myself in both union and non-union shops when I worked in the hotel business, and having known people who have been work who have worked in various uh, endeavors, and that's something that's my history, by the way. Um, you know, there are there are there are advantages and disadvantages. It's not so much these are not, you know, jobs where, where people are, are getting, you know, you know, in, in uh, sweatshops or anything. And also in my case, I worked for a union hotel and then I worked for a non union hotel and the non union hotel, thanks to the union by the way, which I support, was actually better in terms of the, the benefit package and the you know, all of the other, uh, you know, benefit perks involved with the employment because they wanted to keep the union out. And the employees at that hotel did not want the union. So I just, I only bring well, this up. It's not it's a matter of It's too bad it wasn't because just because they respected the workers. That would be a good reason, too. It doesn't matter why. I mean, I was getting a paycheck. I got more money in my check from them than I got when I was working in the union hotel. And it wasn't just because the union got dues. I'm just bringing this up, Dave, because I'm not against unions. I've been in unions, and I think unions have an important place. But it's not necessarily true that, in especially in these sort of retail jobs and some of these manufacturing jobs, which are not what we conventionally used to stereotypically think of as manufacturing jobs, it's not necessarily that different for conditions for a union versus non-union shop. And sometimes the conditions are actually better in the non-union shop and uh you know it's it's you know we go into these images in our mind of of situations that existed in two centuries ago where you had you know people being forced to work seven day weeks and and children being forced to work that's unions played a fantastic role in stopping that they raised the profile and they raised the the morale of working people this is the one thing that I, by the way quite frankly i do credit the left for doing in terms of their influence over the world. Even though I think their motives were horrible, their motives were to try to create communism. Nevertheless, left-wing union shop leaders had a fantastic role, not only in this country, but actually more in Latin America, in terms of raising the morale and raising the level and the strength of working people. I don't, I, in no way do I deny that. I honor it. Yeah, but I well, think we're, that in, in we're today's, largely in agreement. We are, because... but I think that in today's world... You know, unions have, in a sense, they're victims of their own success. You know, there's a place for them, but you have a lot of situations, and you're talking about the telecommunications industry, where there are union businesses and non-union. There's no big clamor. I mean, the, the non-union shop is not all that different than the union shop. There are advantages and disadvantages, and there's no big clamor to for, for most of the people in that business to unionize. Can I get a word? Well, no, I, I, Patrick, I will right disagree ahead. with you on that part because Verizon and uh, T-Mobile, what's going on is they're trying to organize a union, and the companies are engaging in these tactics that, you know, if we, if we had a functioning uh, labor department, et cetera, that wasn't being blocked from nominees and stuff, that a lot of them are illegal. So they, they do want a union. Now, back up. That's not necessarily companies, true. Companies that respect their workers and are looking at a long-term growth, you know, where they respect their customers, respect their shareholders, respect their workers, 
and are looking at the future often don't need a union. They, they everybody's doing pretty well because uh, right. this is a, you know companies run with integrity. But there's an awful lot of short-term greedy thinking, and you know they don't care about the customers. They don't care about the communities they're in. They'll dump toxic stuff in the water. All those kind of things. That's when you got a situation where you need intervention. You know, government regulation, you need, uh, and often the only thing that can really happen that makes a difference is that the workers band together in a union, okay? Yeah, but when you need a, a union, union shop, believe me, it's I tough. It edgewise, yeah, but let me just say, a union shop is not necessarily going to be more environmentally responsible than a non-union shop. There's no evidence of that. And also, a lot of unions... They're they're very cozy with the with the corporation. And they like a lot of corporations like to have unions because they're able to control their you know keep people out and you know it's kind of a most of the cases in this country tend to be a cozy relationship. A classic example of that was General Motors' relationship with the with the um, United Auto Workers. Patrick. Yes, uh, according to the uh, the January uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics report, workers who belong to a union earned. $200 a week on average more than workers who don't belong to a union. Uh, in the private sector, uh, on, in the hourly area, union members earn an average of $4.95 uh, per hour more than non-union uh, workers, which is $10,000 a year more. For workers in the public sector, the difference in salary amounts to, to roughly $165 more, more a week for union versus non-union. As far as benefits are concerned, 92%, according to the Bureau of Labor, uh, Labor Statistics, 92% of union workers have uh, health have access to health care benefits. Only 68% of non-union workers, and then it breaks it down there. On paid leave, union workers get 28% more paid vacation than non-union workers. 46% uh, of union workers receive sick pay. Only 29% of non-union workers do. And on retirement, 77% of union uh, employees were covered by pensions, only 20 uh, or 401ks. Only 20% of non-union workers were covered by any kind of pension. So, being in a union means a lot more. The Center for um, uh, Entrepreneurial Development uh, did a study of the working conditions and the uh, um, environmental aspects of, of union versus non-union companies, and they found that unionized corporations have a much better record of uh, protecting the environment than, than non-unionized corporations. In fact, what they said was, and I remember doing a, uh, a column on this when I was with Skoll, is that you can tell how a company treats the environment and its community by how it treats its workers. Patrick, what are you reading from? Um, I'm reading from the... Um, 19 the uh, the 2010 uh, annual report put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And who are they? The Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's a, it's a federal agency. It's part of the United States Department of uh, Labor. And who is the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies? The Center for Entrepreneurial Studies. I'm doing this in memories. Is a private uh, organization that I dealt with when I was with Skoll, which was some time ago. And I remember doing a column on the fact that. Um, who are they? They're a group of, of um, academics and investors who uh, who start up new companies. I'd have to look into it. But, Patrick, uh, my question to you on these statistics are, are these for comparable or fairly exacting similar industries? And also, do we have any statistics on how many employees are in the union 
shop versus the non-union shop? Uh, the, uh, the the numbers they cite are averages, mm-hmm. uh, and it says, and I'll quote, uh, workers who belong to a union typically earn higher pay than non-union workers doing the same kind of job, although it varies based on sector and occupation. Well, I mean, we in order to really get an accurate statistic, you need to look at very specific, like you'd have to take a look at the telecommunications field and look at the union shops versus the non-union shops and see if there's any major difference. And also, you'd have to take a look at the number of employees. For example, uh, you say that AT&T is a union shop, T-Mobile is a non-union shop. How many employees do each of them have in comparison? And you have to go region by region to really take a look at it. I mean, I would probably guess that T-Mobile has more employees. Are you kidding? <laughs> AT&T is about five times the size of T-Mobile. Yeah, but do they They're actually huge. do manufacturing at this point? I, what's that got to do with it? Because that's what we're talking about, manufacturing. No, jobs. no, we're talking call about call, call centers, no, installers. Call. We're talking about, you know, the people who go up on the lines. There's all these things. Listen, here's here's an important thing to think about when you hear about uh, people starting a union. It is a tough slog to start a union. It is hard. It is a last resort. It is, uh, you know, you risk getting fired. You risk getting beaten. You're, you're risking everything because, and it's gotten to that point, you you get called into the manager's office and shouted at day after day after day. You get these professional or uh, labor uh, relations firms called union busters involved, and they just one thing after another, and they tell you all this stuff, and it goes on and on, and they delay it, and they delay it. It is a huge fight, a hard fight to get a union in, and it only happens when it's really, really, really bad enough that the people are willing to go through that. I've been through that in a in a couple of instances where I was in a place that was trying to get a union, where it was just terrible work. Well, you know, Dave, I would agree with you in that if things were so bad, then the you know you know the union would probably succeed and should succeed. I just wonder if the thing if if conditions are, are that bad, which they would really get that kind of a support. But yesterday, I think it was or maybe it was the day before, Patrick and I had a, got into a controversy around the issue of um, whether it should be le- you know whether there should be a law that forces uh, union people to vote for union membership and have to have their vote publicly done. In other words, they'd have to write their vote on a card that would be read by people who collect those cards versus what we have now, which, of course, is the private vote for these sorts of things. Patrick said he thinks it's a great idea that uh, people would have to vote in public. I said that I think that it's not a great idea because it runs against the American tradition of keeping a private secret ballot. Not that it's a constitutional matter, but that it used to be a progressive cause in this country to make the ballot secret because it it prevents intimidation. Dave, you want to correct that? Dave, do you want to comment on that? What's your position on that? Well, what's going on? It's called card check. And Mm -hmm. they they tried to get through a thing that says when more than 50% of the people working in a place say they want a union, then it's a union is there that those people have said they want a union. So they have a union and the management now has to negotiate contracts. How do they say it? 
Well, the problem, the, well, they, they turn in a card that says, I vote to have a union. And so, that's well, why does that vote check. have to be? The question, the controversy comes up in terms of why that card has to be public, uh, you know, which be, is the old-fashioned way of raising a hand versus because the right to say that union, without having their name on it privately they, in a they private ballot. They don't want the union to just hand in 100 cards and say, okay, 50% of the people voted, but we can't tell you who voted. You can't do who that because you want can't that? believe it. What? Who doesn't because want that? Because you can't believe you don't know that you don't know that they didn't just print them. <laughs> well, well, wait a so, minute. I mean, what do they do now? I mean, how are votes handled if if uh, employees want to vote for or against having a union? How is it done now? Now, the uh, enough of the people petition for a union election, and but they, how is the election have, conducted, uh, Dave? Well, that what happens is that the company starts delaying. I, I'm not asking that. Can, I understand that. The company doesn't want a union. My question right. to you is, if and when there is a, an election, how is it done? Patrick? I, uh, the election that I went through when I when I was in, in, in a union, we were mailed ballots, and we filled out the ballots, and we sent them back, uh, and it went from there. So. And, and who did you send it back to? Uh, they, went, they went back to uh, our Union headquarters. This is a uh, local 770 uh, retail clerks. And, and then and the union, and then the union bosses counted. Well, they weren't bosses. Uh, they okay. there are no union bosses anymore. There are organizers. However, the union heads. And, the and those are supervised uh, by the labor department. Okay, so then, in other words, you mailed back your card. The union heads, as you, if you'd rather, they they counted under supervision from a, a third party, from some sort of an arbitrator. From uh, well, the U.S. government. Okay, and and but but those cards are not signed. In other words, you don't have to declare your name on the card. Uh, I don't recall. Uh, I, it, well, no, I, 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 I think I did have to sign it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I think you do too. And I think that's what this whole controversy is about. The unions want people to publicly do it. Whether it's public or private is simply a smokescreen to have a reason to say we can't just have a union if enough people say so, because they have this effective way of delaying it and delaying it, companies five, six, seven years. Okay, but I agree then, with that. That's a separate issue. The fact is that no, it's going to be an No, that is the issue. Well, no, the issue is that the, if and when there's going to be an election, and I think that there should be an easier way to do it. Of course, companies don't want unions. They shouldn't be able to prevent it. But if there is going to be an election, People should have the right to decide, you know, anonymously, just like they do when you elect public officials. Because to have it any other way is going to open individuals up for intimidation by unions, not so much and by companies. I mean, or, or by companies. But the fact is right. that if you if you have to sign something and declare your name, and, and you can be found, and your name is in the yellow pages, and you're voting against a union when the union has tried to make this happen. I mean, look, Dave, you'll admit that there's a long history of unions uh, behaving rather unkindly, and again, this isn't every union, but this is some, toward workers who don't go along. They call them scabs. Yeah, the employees at a place know that if they don't get the union in, all kinds of bad things will happen to them, yeah. and they're very upset when other employees are scabs who will do things or take bribes or whatever in order to Go with the company, yeah. Look, Dave, the, right. the, whatever it is, the answer is that it should be, if you have to vote in public, that is an intimidation because some people may not want unions, and that is their right. 
So if there's an election, to have a really fair election, and this is a, a tradition, as, as I said, in America. Why, this is why we have a secret ballot. You know, in the old days, actually in the colonial times, they didn't have a secret ballot. They'd have people sit in a big room and raise their hands, and there was a lot of violence. People would get knocked in the head. Well, you know what, Chuck, this is real easy to deal with when, when the cars get sent back, that they go directly to the National Labor Relations Board, which checks the signatures and counts it, then just announces it, and the, the labor union never sees uh, who signed what cards. And incidentally, uh, AT&T has 189,000 employees. T-Mobile has 42,000. So there's quite a big difference there. Well, I don't know how many of those employees are actually you know, working, you know, in real jobs, I mean, or versus administrators. I'm sorry, if you work for AT&T, you have a real well, job. Well, you know what I mean. As opposed Patrick, to administrators and, and office people, <laughs> I'm talking about people out in the field. But, but Patrick, that's I think relevant. that that's, I think, no, I think it's very relevant. I think that's because those are the people that might really need, either need a union or maybe rejecting a union. But, Patrick, well, I think that that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. You know, if people can mail in their votes, anonymously or at least without having to send it directly to the union where their names would be seen by people and they could you know there could be consequences then then I'd support that I mean I think that's you know as long as there's well, you know a reasonable level where people can be assured that they're not going to be called out publicly for their vote that's all and my recollection by, by is public. that's what the employee free choice act was but it was they started saying well if you mail in a card then you're not having a secret ballot as a way as a smokescreen, a red herring, to give them an excuse to vote against it. But let, let me give you an example of excuses like to vote against it. What they have now. See, these I mean, are all done. These are all the way that the elections are run are all done by law. And here's what happens. Let me just give you an example. There was a recent Federal Aviation Association budget bill that. Republicans, they even shut down the FAA, laid off 100,000 people, etc., for months over this, was that Delta Airlines was essentially paying the Republicans to get provisions in this bill to block a union. And what they ended up getting was that the union, when they have an election, anybody who doesn't vote in the election is considered a no vote, and it includes all living ex-employees. That's what they got written into the law. Now, is Delta, is Delta unionized? No. You know, that probably explains, and this is where I agree with you, Dave. I've always found the Delta employees to be a lot surlier and a lot meaner and a lot uh, less pleasant than the employees of, um, of some of the air, other airlines. You're not the only one. <laughs> and I, I used to live in Atlanta, and I flew Delta constantly because that's their hub. Yeah, I just don't like them, and maybe maybe that's because they don't have a union. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, I was knows? thinking that after what was I flew to Florida on not Delta, but on um, on, on on another airline, and I was thinking how good they were. Uh, you know, my daughter commented also. We used to fly Delta, and she was like, "Oh, I hate Delta." So, and so I thought of you, Dave, when she said that. I say, well, I wonder why. If that's because they're not unionized. There's a huge well, battle, you know, when uh, Delta acquired Northwest, which is very union, and Delta fought tooth and nail to, to get the uh, Northwest unions uh, out of uh, Delta Airlines. Of course, these are not again; these are not sweatshop jobs. You know, if the, if Delta oh, gets the union, airline uh, jobs some of can them are. be terrible. Even pilot jobs yeah. it can be terrible. Well, sweatshop and low pay jobs. They, I didn't no. say they're easy jobs, but it's not. And, you know, they're, they're generally fairly good-paying jobs. Maybe Delta doesn't Not pay anymore. as well as you well, out there. 
Not anymore. And well, that's and don't that's forget, call of, centers are a big part of, of an airline. That's not because of the corporation. That is what to do with public policy regarding international trade. No, and, no these kind of things. <laughs> and by the way, these kind of things. Dave, so I, wonder if you'll weigh, I wonder if you'll weigh in on this. Patrick and I had another controversy the other day. Well, well wait, wait a minute, uh, Chuck. Uh, on, on wages and working conditions for airlines have nothing to do with international trades. We're talking about domestic carriers here. The, uh, the airlines have consistently cut back on the pay, particularly for, for stewardesses and, and airline attendants and also people who, who deal uh, with, with their tickets, and they have consistently been, been cited. Uh, by the FAA for requiring long shifts and shifts that are actually dangerous for pilots, and there have been a number of lawsuits about that. This is this is with the airlines trying to lower their prices to meet competition and and to do it without affecting profits. And of course, we know that airlines have to go up and down in their profits, but it has nothing to do with international law, or international okay, trade. Okay, I agree with that, okay. Patrick. They also have cut back on stuff they give us too. They no longer give those great dinners that they used to give. Now you get a bag of peanuts. Yeah. Really? But, uh, Listen, I want to say something wow. more broad. But, but, but I, I guess that you know, to to go to the controversy, uh, Patrick and I were talking about the rise in in gas prices, and Patrick says that this is because the oil companies are becoming more greedy and that they want to they they've cut back on domestic oil supplies. I don't know if there's any evidence. Gasoline that. supplies, not yeah. oil supplies. Yeah, there's tons. Supplies. Oh yeah, I was just looking. Because refinery get, closings well, and stuff. Because they're it's out of just the greed of of the companies, and I'm not saying that's not the case, but I I came back and contended that this is an example of what is really happening with our monetary system, and that is that it's a, it's evidence of inflation, even though the statistics don't show that. If you take a look at perishable goods in this country, not one-time purchases, but things like gasoline, food, things that we really need every week in order to live, they're going up. And they're going up because the value of the dollar is going down. It's not because the companies are getting more greedy. I mean, I'll agree they generally are greedy and, and just raising their prices. It's because when the value of the dollar goes down, because there are so many dollars pumped into the economy, the prices go up because they have to keep pace with the present cost of doing business. It's not because they're they're raising the prices out of greed. They're trying to stay, you know, they're trying to keep pace with present uh, cost of doing business, and that's what inflation it, does. In monetary speak, that that's really only happens when you have something called full employment, and we're pretty far from that. Well, I don't slack. know what that has to do with it, Dave. It what has it has to do, to do with it. No, no, no. What it has to do with is the fact that in the past three years. 1.5 trillion more dollars have been pumped into the economy, and it has deflated the value of the dollar. That's what well, it has to do all, with. First of all, Chuck, more than that, and second of all, no, we have zero, almost zero inflation right now. Well, that's, so, where, yeah, that's what I'm questioning. That's what I'm questioning. I know the statistics say that, but I'm questioning that. I'm saying the low really, this is all being a lot. This is a lot of kind of like three-card Monty being played with statistics. Oh, don't worry. There's no inflation. Well, We have one minute. Thank you. Why, the, then, are the quickly, price of food quickly. and everything? The, the low interest rates encourage speculation in commodities, and you see bubbles. Yes, we've seen that. No, but no, we've no, also no. This is to do with spending that down. is not concomitant with production. That's what inflation is, and it's not just gas. It's also food. It's basic services, things that affect working people. Prices are going up, not because the companies are greedy. I know they're greedy at times. It has to do with the devalue of the dollar. Anyway, Dave, uh, we're running out of time. Why don't you have the last word? All right. Uh, management cultures in different companies can make all the difference, and greedy management cultures 
uh, almost require unions, but then they come along and fight unions. Dave, uh, thanks for joining us. Patrick, we shall return. Who do we have coming up tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow we have our usual exciting show, and it's going to be Rachel uh, Laris of the Women's Media Center talking about how women are treated in the media today, and then uh, Joyce uh, Graff talking about uh, some rare diseases. So it's going to be an interesting show tomorrow. All right, Patrick, and we urge people to go to our website, fairnessradio.com, check out Barton Publishing while you're there, click on it and get good products. And uh, thanks for joining us. Patrick, talk to you tomorrow. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave, and talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.